For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this morning, Lessons from the Olive Tree, Part 1, Romans chapter 11, verses 16 through 24. So now, brothers and sisters, in our week-by-week consideration of Paul's epistle to the church at Rome, we are continuing our work through chapter 11 in a section of text where Paul has been explaining the state of his Jewish countrymen having rejected the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They have rejected Jesus Christ. Chapter 9, verse 1, this is a matter of great sorrow, continual grief in the heart of the apostle Paul. Chapter 10, verse 1, it is his heart's desire and prayer to God for them that they might be saved. Israel is floundering in sin and unbelief. Israel has rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. They have rejected the gospel. Pursuing a justifying righteousness with God through their own works, the Jews have stumbled at the stumbling stone. And Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes in him. Jew and Gentile alike, Jew and Gentile alike, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ will never be put to shame. All those who call upon him in faith, all those who receive the gift of Christ's own righteousness by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. That is a promise from scripture. Those who share the faith of believing Abraham, they are the ones who are counted as the seed. They are the ones who receive the covenant blessings, the covenant promises given to believing Abraham. And behold, God says to the son, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. Behold, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is the magnificent and infinitely wise redemptive plan of our God to save a people for his own name. Now concerned with whether their rejection Paul's Jewish countrymen, right, concerned with whether their rejection of Jesus Christ now means God's rejection of them, Paul then opens chapter 11 with a very important question in verse 1, considering or concerning the present condition of the Jews. Verse 1, I say then, has God cast away his people? Paul answers emphatically, certainly not, may it never be, God forbid. While the vast majority of physical, temporal, theocratic Israel have rejected the gospel, have rejected Jesus Christ, God has graciously, mercifully spared a remnant for the sake of the fathers according to the election of grace. Verse 2, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. All those, in fact, whom he foreknew, he predestines to be conformed into the image of his Son. Those whom he predestines, he effectually calls them. He justifies them through the means of their faith, and he glorifies them. But just as Paul now has proven that their rejection is not total, Paul also proves that their rejection is not terminal. Their rejection is not ultimately fatal. Verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Has all hope 
for the Jews been lost? And Paul answers again, just as emphatically, certainly not, may it never be, God forbid. And what is revealed here in this statement, in this argument from Paul, is the very character, the very nature of our saving God. You could say that the very nature, the very character of our gracious God is at stake here in these questions, in these objections, and in Paul's answers. God delights to show mercy. God delights to pour out his grace upon an undeserving people. God is faithful to his promises, and God has promised. God has made a promise to Abraham, and you can take it to the bank that he will keep it. Why? Because God is gracious, because he is merciful, because he delights to show mercy, because he is faithful to his word. So Paul answers emphatically, certainly not. Our God, who delights to show mercy, is pursuing a greater purpose than the mere judgment of Israel according to her sin. God is, God is demonstrating, revealing, working out a greater purpose than simply judging a, a people with righteous retribution for their sin against him. God is pursuing a people for his name. In grace and in mercy, God is, is pursuing the salvation of the nations. God employs his justice. God employs his wrath in the service of his mercy, in the service of his grace. And employing his wrath in the service of his mercy, God provokes the Jews to jealousy through the salvation of the Gentiles. And all of that with an eye forward to showing mercy upon the Jews, with an eye forward to showing grace to the Gentiles. God says in Deuteronomy chapter 32, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. To what end? To what end does God do this? That in in great contrast to their apostasy, in great contrast to their unbelief, God intends to reap their fullness, bringing every elect Jew, bringing every elect Gentile into the kingdom of the son of his love through the gospel to the praise of his glorious grace. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. This is the grace and mercy of our great God. Grace and mercy that he continues to show you and I through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, those who place their faith and trust in him. This is an example. This is an example of the infinite wisdom, the mysterious wisdom, if you will, of God in saving a people for the glory of his own name. The apostasy and unbelief of Israel leads to the salvation of the Gentiles, lost and ignorant people walking in darkness. The salvation of the Gentiles, in turn, leads to the fullness of Israel's salvation, a sinful, idolatrous, rebellious people. And the fullness of Israel's salvation leads to even greater blessings upon the Gentiles. Speaking of the Jews, Paul says in verse 15, for if their current judgment If their current judgment means reconciling of the world, then what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. That, brothers and sisters, brings us to verse 16, then, and the subject of our text this morning. In the redemptive plans and purposes of God, God intends to bless Israel. He intends to bless true Israel. He intends to bless spiritual Israel with such an outpouring of his grace and mercy that their current rejection 
will be overshadowed by their future fullness and their future acceptance. And their acceptance will mean life from the dead. Now, that contrast in our text is critically important to understanding what Paul means here by fullness and by acceptance. Their current rejection, their current condition, reflects the judgment of God. The Jews, the present condition of physical, temporal, theocratic Israel, their current condition reflects the judgment of God. Their future condition, expressed here, described here in the text, will reflect their acceptance, and that through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the question is this. If their current condition reflects the judgment of God, and their future condition will reflect their acceptance with God through the gospel— And on what basis are we to understand this principle? How can we understand this, Paul? Help us with an analogy so that we can get it, right? Now, it's in that spirit of helping us to understand that Paul now employs the analogy of an olive tree. That analogy of the olive tree, together with images of the first fruit and the lump, we have here the root and the branches, natural branches, wild branches being grafted in, and it's with this illustration that Paul begins His explanation in verse 16. Verse 16. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches." But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. So if you're looking with me at verse 16, Paul begins his analogy now with a reference to the first fruit and the lump, the first fruit and the lump. Now that imagery, again, Paul is not pulling out illustrations. He's not pulling out um, imagery out of thin air. Okay, Paul, this imagery comes from Numbers 15, and I want you to turn there with me to Numbers 15. And in Numbers 15, Paul pulls his illustration from the law concerning the grain sacrifice. Look in Numbers 15, beginning in verse 17. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, verse 18, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land to which I bring you, then it will be when you eat of the bread of the land that you shall offer up a heave offering to the Lord. Now, Numbers 15, the Israelites who entered the land that God had promised to give them, if you think with me, they're not being fed with manna out of heaven now, right? They're not being fed by quail that God provided for them directly in the wilderness. When they come into the land, they're now going to plant their own crops. They're now going to grow their own food. So in Numbers 15, when the, when the, the um, Israelites who entered that land that God had promised to give them, a land that he promised would flow with milk and honey, they were commanded to give a first fruits grain offering to the Lord. And it wasn't meant only to be the first fruits of an initial harvest, right? When you bring in the harvest in the fall, it wasn't only to be the first fruits offering of that initial harvest, but every time uh, those Jews, the people of Israel, every time they took grain, and they kneaded that grain into a lump of dough, a portion of that lump of dough was to be offered up to God as sacrifice. 
A heave offering is a way of describing the presentation of that offering up to God. They would lift it up, present it to him before burning it. Verse 20, you shall offer up a cake of the first of your ground meal as a heave offering. Every time they took a, a lump of dough from which to make their bread, from which to make their cakes, they would take a portion of that dough and they would offer it up that portion of that ground meal as a heave offering to the Lord. Verse 20, as a heave offering to the, of the threshing floor, so you shall offer it up. Of the first of your ground meal, you shall give to the Lord a heave offering throughout your generations. Now think with me. This first fruit offering was a way of expressing gratefulness to God. It was a, a way of expressing their gratitude. God had given them all that they had. God had given them the land. God had given them the crops. God had given them the produce from the crops. God had given them their food out of his very hand. It wasn't as though at that time that God dropped manna directly out of heaven for them and they saw it on the ground and they basically walked around and picked it up. But it is no less true that God himself provided their food. It is no less true, brothers and sisters, for you and I today. Everything you have, the clothes on your back, the food on your table, the money in your bank. Everything that you have has been given to you directly by the hand of God as if God dropped that out of heaven like manna, right? Everything you have comes from him. Your provision is from the Lord. So this first fruits offering was a way of expressing gratitude to God. God, I know that I haven't received anything that I've not been given. Everything that I have comes from you. When we pray right before you eat a meal, it's a, that is a, a meal-by-meal meal reminder of God's grace to you. A meal-by-meal meal reminder of God's provision for you. Every time you get paid, right? An honest day's wage for an honest day's work. Every time, that is a paycheck-by-paycheck a, a paycheck reminder that it is God who gives us all that we have, God who gives us all that we need, amen? Well, the, the Jews understood that understood that, and they would offer up the first fruits of all that God had given them to the Lord because it all comes from him, and it was a way of expressing their gratitude. It was a way of expressing their faith in him that God would certainly provide. He has provided, and he will provide all that they needed. But now the principle behind that offering that concerns Paul here in Romans chapter 11 is this. By offering the first portion of that needed lump of dough as holy, as separated, or as consecrated, as dedicated to the Lord, for his worship, for his use, the Jews knew, the Jews believed that the rest of the lump was also made holy and acceptable as well. In other words, that which is offered with thanksgiving is consecrated to God, and it consecrates the rest. Um, it makes holy or separate to God the rest. The first lump of dough given to the Lord in faith as an expression of gratitude meant the consecration of the whole lump. And we eat in faith, right? We partake in faith. The first of the dough given to the Lord meant the consecration of the entire lump. Back in Romans 11, Paul sees now in that example, in that illustration of the first fruit and the lump, he sees in that example of the grain offering an important illustration to explain God's redemptive plan for the Jews. Just as the first fruit 
is holy to the Lord, just as the first fruit sacrifice is taken from that kneaded lump of dough, so there is consecration or dedication for the lump of Israel that is derived from her first fruits who are also holy to the Lord. Right? So there is a consecration. So there is a dedication of the lump. Now that thought is continued in verse 16 regarding the illustration of the root and the branches. Think with me now through this verse. Verse 16. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now they're essentially two different interpretations of Paul's thought here. Two different interpretations, right? First, in this particular interpretation, the first fruit of the lump refers to the remnant that God has saved out of the lump of fallen and unbelieving Israel. The first fruit refers, or the lump, the first fruit refers to the remnant, right? Saving the first fruit or saving the remnant is a pledge in this interpretation, saving the first fruit or saving the remnant is a pledge that the lump of unbelieving Israel is also consecrated to the Lord and that God will at some point save the lump, the rest of the lump, in keeping with his covenant dealings with, it, uh, with Israel as a nation. That's oftentimes the way that a dispensationalist might explain this text. The first fruits then are those Jews first saved through faith in Jesus Christ into the church, right? They're the first fruits of the Jews coming into the church, so to speak, and others will be saved out of the lump of Israel in the same way, and eventually God will save the entire lump, right? However, Paul clarifies the interpretation for us here by referring synonymously to the root and the branches. He gives the first illustration, the first fruit and the lump, and then he speaks synonymously of the root and the branches. The root referring to the origin, the root referring to the starting point, often uh, we we uh, hear in Scripture, um, spoken of fathers, referred to as the root, producing fruit, right? Uh, from the root or the stem of Jesse, for example, uh, that, from which David came, right? So root, referring to the starting point. Is the present remnant of elect and believing Jews, is that remnant the root? Is that remnant the root from which future branches will all grow? The answer to that question is no. Redemptively, historically, it simply doesn't work that way, okay? The redemptive root from which true spiritual Israel has flourished runs far deeper than that remnant. And Paul has already spoken of that root in this letter to the church at Rome. Paul's own words will bear that out in our text, Romans chapter 11, verse 28. Concerning the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake, you Gentiles. It's through their fall that salvation has come to the Gentiles. But, in contrast, concerning the election of grace, they are beloved, what? For the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. He is faithful to his word and faithful to his word that he made in covenant with the fathers. So the second way then to interpret this passage is this. This interpretation is most consistent with Paul's context. The first fruit of the lump, the root 
from which the branches grow, those terms refer to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, as it were, is the root. Those with whom God himself entered into covenant, the very beginning of the nation, the very origin of the nation. The first fruit refers to the patriarchs. The lump is Israel. The, the root, the root refers to the fathers, to the patriarchs. The branches refer to Israel. Now that raises the question then, if you're thinking through this text, that raises the question. If the first fruit is holy, if the root is holy, consecrated, and dedicated to God, then what does Paul mean by referring to the lump as holy and the branches as holy? Israel has sinned. Israel has committed grievous sin. Israel has rejected her Messiah. What does it mean then when Paul says the lump is holy and the branches are holy? The word holy is a word that refers to being set apart. It's a word that refers to being separated, a word that refers to being consecrated, dedicated to God. We often refer to that word in terms of being set apart from sin. We often think of that word as referring to a moral purity. But here in our text, Paul uses the word to refer to being set apart to God, to being set apart to him, consecrated to him. The Jews had been set apart to God as a nation. They had been consecrated to him for his own use. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. I want to understand this application or the use of this word in text for holy, how it applies here. Deuteronomy chapter 7, look at verse 6. The Lord says to Israel, the Lord says to this physical, theocratic nation, verse 6, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Did that mean that they were morally pure? No, no. It means that they were a separate people. You are a separate people, a separated people, a consecrated people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, though they were a stiff-necked people. (laughs) A special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth, though they were a rebellious people. Verse 7, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, verse 8, And because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, that's the root. Because he is faithful to his word to keep the covenant that he made with their fathers, for that reason, verse 8, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, verse 9, no that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. Brothers and sisters, that's the issue, right? That's the issue in this conflict, this this, um, discussion that that Paul is having with the Jews. They're basically saying to Paul, Paul, if the gospel that you're preaching is true, then God has abandoned his people. God has cast away his people and God has cast away his promises. 
his covenant blessings. And his word has taken no effect. God's word, God's promise is essentially null and void, and God is acting faithlessly. God is acting unjustly towards Israel. And Paul would say emphatically, certainly not. May it never be. God forbid. God is faithful to his word. Do you see? It's the faithfulness of God that is in the heart and mind of Paul as he answers these objections. The Jews were set apart. The Jews were consecrated. They were dedicated. They were holy to the Lord. And that for the purpose of serving God for the purpose of sustaining his worship, for the purpose of reflecting his glory, spreading his glory across the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's the issue. From the very origination of the nation with Abraham, from the very root, they were a special people called by God from among the nations and separated to himself. And as a nation set apart by God, consecrated and dedicated to God, Israel enjoyed tremendous blessings, tremendous blessings. The Lord himself would go before them. We heard this morning, he would go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They heard his audible voice. He provided everything for them. Their sandals didn't wear out on their feet the entire time they wandered through the wilderness. He would be their God and they would be his people. Brothers and sisters, the gospel... The gospel does not abolish that consecration. The gospel establishes it. The gospel does not abolish that holy dedication, that holy separation. The gospel fulfills it. It's through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that that holy consecration of a people will come to its fullest expression its fullest expression in a people which cannot be numbered out of every tribe and people and tongue and nation. Now, as we said last week, that promise from God doesn't mean that every single ethnic Jew is going to be saved. It's not what Paul is saying. But what it does mean is an ongoing identification of the true people of God with Israel as a people chosen by God and precious. It does mean that ongoing identification. And that's why Paul, multiple times in the New Testament, refers to the church of the living God through faith in Jesus Christ as the Israel of God, as true Israel, as spiritual Israel. Back in Romans 11 now. It's from here that Paul now abandons his reference to the first fruit in the lump, and he picks up this focus on the olive tree he narrows his focus to concentrate on his illustration from the olive tree. Verse 16. If the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. And do not boast against the branches. If you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. And Paul says as much in Romans chapter 4 about our father Abraham. Remember, right? He has become the father of us all. If the root refers to the patriarchs and the olive tree then refers to Israel. If the root refers to the patriarchs, the olive tree refers to Israel. And again, that image of the olive tree was a very familiar image to the Jews. Paul didn't pull the illustration out of thin air. In fact, Israel is often referred to 
as a cultivated plant, a cared for or tended plant, a cared for or tended tree. And those images are all over the Old Testament. Israel is referred to as a vineyard, a cultivated vine, cared for by the great vine dresser. They are referred to as a fruit tree, and they are referred to as an olive tree. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 11. Jeremiah chapter 11. In Jeremiah 11, the prophet Jeremiah, God's prosecuting attorney, is prophesying against the southern kingdom of Judah. Everyone has forsaken the covenant that God had made with their fathers. Everyone has forsaken the covenant. They have gone after the Baals. Everyone, God says, is following the dictates of his own evil heart. Therefore, God is pronouncing upon them the judgment that is associated with the covenant. There are penal sanctions that God had promised in keeping with the covenant, and God now is pronouncing upon them the judgment that is associated with those sanctions. Verse 11. Therefore, Jeremiah 11, verse 11. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will surely bring calamity on them, which they will not be able to escape. And though they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry out to the gods to whom they offer incense. They will cry out to worthless idols that cannot hear them. But they will not save them at all in the time of their trouble. And why is that? They are a worthless piece of wood. (laughs) Just like every single idol that you and I may put our trust in in this day and age, it is absolutely worthless to save. You cannot trust in your own possessions. You cannot trust in your own enjoyments. You cannot trust in your own leisure or your own comforts. You cannot trust in technology. You can only trust in the Lord your God. Those things are worthless idols. They cannot save. Four, verse 13. According to the number of your cities were your gods. Boy, that's true today, just like it was then. According to the number of your cities were your gods, O Judah. And according to the number of the streets of Jerusalem, you have set up altars to that shameful thing, altars to burn incense to Baal. So do not pray then for this people. Lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not hear it in the time that they cry out to me because of their trouble. What has my beloved to do in my house? Notice he calls them his beloved, this idolatrous nation. What have they to do in my house, having done lewd deeds with many? The Jews were considered beloved for the sake of the fathers. Do you see? Over and over again, scriptures remind us of that fact. The Jews considered beloved for the sake of their fathers. And they had forsaken the blessings and the protections associated with God's house, God's worship. Verse 15, the holy flesh... In other words, those sacrifices, those peace offerings, they have passed from you. When you do evil, then you rejoice. Verse 16, and the Lord called your name, green olive tree, lovely and of good fruit. That's what the Lord had called them. That's what the Lord had set them apart to be. With the noise of a great tumult, now he has kindled fire on it and its branches are broken. That, has, that is what has become of God's planted plant. That, has, 
is what has become of God's olive tree. He has kindled a fire on it, and its branches are broken. Verse 17, for the Lord of hosts who planted you has pronounced doom against you for the evil of the house of Israel and for the evil of the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger in offering incense to Baal. So God then offers, or God promises a judgment upon Israel in which Israel's branches will be broken off. As we well know from working through Romans 11, that's not the end of Israel. God pronounces this judgment but that's not, the, that's not the end. God shows astonishing mercy, astonishing mercy, measureless, infinite patience, infinite grace, and God promises to restore Israel. Look at Hosea 14 with me. Hosea, a little bit to the right. There is yet hope. Have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. May it never be. God forbid. God promises a glorious restoration, a restoration in which true Israel will return to the Lord their God in repentance and faith, and God intends to save them. Hosea 14. Now, just as Jeremiah was called to prophesy to the southern kingdom of Judah, Hosea is called to prophesy to the northern kingdom of Israel. Hosea is God's prosecuting attorney. He is, his story is the story of an adulterous wife and a one-sided love, unrequited love, right? Just as Gomer is married to Hosea, Israel is betrothed to God. And in both cases, that wife is a brazen whore. She runs off after other lovers. But after a purifying judgment, God intends to purify her, After a purifying judgment, God promises a magnificent, a glorious, a gracious, a merciful restoration. Look at verse 1. O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you. Return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands. So those, those worthless pieces of wood and gold and silver, you are our gods. For in you, God, in you alone, the fatherless finds mercy. Verse 4, God says, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. That is astonishing mercy, astonishing grace. And brothers and sisters, if you've put your faith and trust in Christ, that's the mercy that God showed you. That's the grace that he's poured out on you. You deserve the fire. You deserve the judgment. And look at the grace and mercy of our God, God who delights to show mercy. Trust in him, won't you? Put your faith in him. He delights to show mercy. The fatherless finds mercy. I will heal their backsliding, verse 4. I will love them freely for my anger has turned away from him. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall grow like the lily, lengthen his roots like Lebanon. His branches shall spread. His beauty shall be like an olive tree. Do you see what God intended for Israel was to be this green, beautiful, lush, 
fruit-producing olive tree. And because of Israel's idolatry, because of their sin and rebellion against him, God kindles a fire on it and its branches are broken. But in grace and in mercy, because God's name is to delight to show mercy, right? To show mercy to them, um, God promises to restore. He's going to restore that olive tree to beauty, to the beauty that he had intended for it. They can't do it. They won't do it. God will do it. His branches shall spread. His beauty shall be like an olive tree. His fragrance like Lebanon. Those who dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall be revived like grain. They shall grow like a vine. Their scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim shall say, what have I to do anymore with idols? I have heard and observed him. I am like a green cypress tree. Your fruit is found within me. Who is wise? Verse 9. Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Jeremiah speaks of a future judgment. Hosea speaks of a future restoration. And in both cases, Israel is referred to as the olive tree. There is a time in which her branches will be cut off. In Romans chapter 11, verse 20, it's cut off for unbelief. There's also a time in which she will be restored and the olive tree will flourish. So brothers and sisters, at this point in Romans chapter 11, we've considered the identity of the olive tree and we have identified its root. The olive tree is the nation of Israel. The root is that tree. The root of that tree is Abraham and the patriarchs. And that tree is rooted in the soil of God's faithfulness to his word. It is rooted in the soil of God's covenant promises to Abraham. And rooted in that soil, that tree has grown producing natural branches, producing the physical or natural descendants of Abraham and keeping with those promises of God. And many of those branches now have been cut or broken off because of their unbelief, cut off from true Israel, cut off from the people of God, cut off from the blessings of the covenant. Nevertheless, what what do the scriptures say? Nevertheless, the tree is beloved for the sake of the fathers. Do you see? Beloved for the sake of the fathers. Why? Because God had made a promise. God is going to keep his word. So back in Romans 11, having identified Israel as the olive tree, speaking of a pruning, whereby some of the branches on the tree were broken off. Paul then turns to his Gentile audience in verse 17, and he says to them, And you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. With that, Paul once again addresses the Gentile believers in the church at Rome distinguishing, as he did in verse 13, between his Jewish countrymen, according to the flesh, and Gentiles in the church, believing Gentiles in the church. Gentiles were not a natural part of the olive tree. Do you see? Not a natural part. But even the Old Testament, even the Old Testament, you see examples of Gentiles or wild branches being grafted in. Rahab was one of those, wasn't she? Rahab grafted in. Caleb The Kenite was one of those. Caleb was even one of those with Joshua who wholly followed the Lord with all his heart and entered the promised land. 
with the inheritance generation, right? And that became a picture. Caleb and Joshua, Caleb and Joshua entering the promised land became a picture, if you will, of Jews and Gentiles entering the promised land through the new covenant. Becomes a picture of what God is going to do in saving the nations for his own name. Nevertheless, nevertheless, believing Gentiles have to be grafted in. They are grafted in among the natural branches. In speaking of the illustration, the cultivated olive tree, carefully tended, cared for, tended by the master arborist, that cultivated olive tree would have produced the absolute best fruit. That tree would have produced the greatest yield. Often, with that cultivated or tended olive tree, a place would be made in that tree for a wild branch to be grafted in. And that was for the strengthening of the whole tree, right? To strengthen it against pestilence or to strengthen it against disease, to strengthen that wild branch and to strengthen the tree to which it was grafted, right? There was a purpose for grafting in the wild olive branch. Now notice, notice with me, in speaking of grafting and ingrafting of the Gentiles, there is one tree. There's one tree. Gentiles are being grafted into that tree. Gentiles do not replace that tree. They are being grafted into that tree. That little accusation of replacement theology is really ugly, really uncharitable. Anyone who makes that kind of accusation against um, biblical theology is really they don't know what they're talking about or they're being un- uncharitable. It's not replacement theology. This is fulfillment theology. Gentiles are grafted into that one tree. With the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, with his completed work in securing the blessings of the new covenant through his own shed blood at the cross, the composition of that tree, uh, the composition of Israel began to change. Okay, think with me. There has always been a believing remnant included in that tree. Have always been a believing remnant. Under the old covenant, the constitution of the whole tree, though, was not limited to those who were effectually called, born again, predestined, and dwelt by the Spirit, justified, sanctified, and glorified. The constitution of the whole tree was not limited to those under the old covenant. There were many who were attached to that tree through the physical terms of the covenant. Born a Jew, circumcised, right? But with the passing away of that covenant, there is no covenant now whereby the mere physical descendants of Abraham or the mere circumcised descendants of Abraham are counted among the people of God. Paul says circumcision is nothing. That physical descendancy from Abraham means Nothing. With a passing away of that covenant, it is only through faith in Jesus Christ that anyone is now added to that tree. Unbelieving natural branches have been cut off from Israel. Believing wild branches from among the Gentiles are being grafted in. And the Gentiles are pouring into the church through faith alone in Christ alone. Israel's fall has become riches for the world. 
turn to Christ in faith and be saved. Amen. Turn now to Christ and be saved. I want us to further grow an understanding of this pivotal text. I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter two. And again, in light of what we're talking about, I want to look together with you at Ephesians chapter two. And I want to think of Ephesians chapter two in the context of our, the subject we're talking about in Romans 11. Okay. Ephesians chapter two, I know that Ephesians is in my Bible. Ephesians chapter 2. There we go. Ephesians chapter 2. Look there with me, beginning at verse 11. Verse 11. Therefore, you Gentiles, therefore remember that you Gentiles, once Gentiles in the flesh, those of you, you Gentiles who are called uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, you were called uncircumcised Gentiles by the Jews, that at that time, once Gentiles in the flesh, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Because, verse 14, he himself is our peace. You have been grafted in, and he has made both one, one tree. And he has broken down the middle wall of separation. He has done away with the old covenant. Right? He has broken down that middle wall of separation. He's done away with the old covenant, having abolished in his flesh... On the cross, the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, he abolished that so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. He has grafted us into one tree so that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. He came preaching peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. For through him, Jesus Christ, and him alone, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, here's the implication of that. Here's the conclusion that we should draw. You are no longer strangers. You are no longer foreigners. You are no longer aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, you see? But rather, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You are members of the tree, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being that chief cornerstone spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows now into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. There's not two trees. (laughs) There are not two peoples of God, Israel and the church. There is one olive tree. The church is Israel. Israel is the church. Church is Israel in its new covenant. You You could even say the church is Israel in its reconstituted form. Unbelieving Jews unbelieving Jews broken off, believing Gentiles grafted in, 
you have believing elect Jews and believing elect Gentiles, now part of the same tree, the promises of the covenant that God made with Abraham, not merely to a physical Jewish seed, not merely a small stretch of land on the eastern side of the Mediterranean, are blessings, not merely physical blessings upon our crops and our nation. Those were only typological. They point to something far greater, a far greater purpose, a far greater plan. Romans chapter 4, Abraham knew that through the gospel, he was to inherit the world. Abraham knew it. The true circumcision, the true seed of Abraham is not according to the flesh. The true circumcision, the true seed of Abraham is according to the spirit. Paul says, brothers and sisters, beware of the mutilation. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ, and have no confidence in the flesh. We are the circumcision. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If you are Christ, you are his seed. Brothers and sisters, you have believed upon Jesus Christ to the saving of your soul. You have been grafted in then to a rich heritage that is yours in Jesus Christ. Not in and of yourself, but because you are united to him who secured those blessings for you by fulfilling everything that the law demands and by dying in your place as a perfect sacrifice. Rooted in the promises of God made to our father Abraham, Jesus Christ came and won those promises for you if your faith and trust is in him. He secured those promises for you, for me. And God is faithful to his word. God is faithful to his promises. You who were once far off, without Christ, having no hope and without God in this world, you have been brought near now by the blood of Christ. You have been grafted in. You are no longer strangers, no longer aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You've been brought near by Jesus Christ. He, as it were, tucked his arm inside yours and brought you with him to the throne room of grace and entered in behind the veil and now always lives there making intercession for you with the Father. He has wrapped his arms around you and he bears you on his breast as he goes into the most holy place and pleads our case there by his blood. And now, brothers and sisters, we have access into that very holy place by the blood of Jesus Christ to offer up the praise of thanksgiving from our lips, to offer up our petitions, our need, and he is our help in our time of need. And he is faithful to help. He does not give aid to angels in that way. But he does give aid to who? To the seed of Abraham, whose seed you are through faith in Jesus Christ. Our God is faithful to his promises. By his grace, by his grace, you have been made a partaker of the root and the fatness of that tree. We're going to talk about that next week. You've been made a partaker of the root and the fatness of God's own cared for, tended, cultivated olive tree. He is the one who walks in the midst of the vineyard, pruning and cutting as he goes, caring for and tending and watering and fertilizing. He is the greatest 
the greatest caretaker. He is the greatest vine dresser. He's the greatest arborist. He will ensure that we produce fruit. He will ensure that we are a green olive tree planted by rivers of water. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, his ways past finding out. We can rejoice in that. Right? That is something we should rejoice in. But we can't be presumptuous about that. And we can't be haughty about that. It's the mercy and the grace of God. We cannot pride ourselves in that. If we are to boast, we are to boast in the Lord. Amen? If we're to rejoice, we're to rejoice in him. And we'll talk about that more from the Apostle Paul next week if the Lord wills it. All praise, honor, and glory to him. Amen? Who saved us by his grace. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, what astonishing mercy, what magnificent and matchless grace, what abounding compassion and kindness, what infinite patience, what wonder and awe at the redemptive plans and purposes of our God. What We marvel, Lord, at your infinite wisdom. We marvel at all that you've done through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we marvel that you have determined to set your love upon us, an unworthy, undeserving, sinful, idolatrous, rebellious people, that you've determined to set your distinguishing love upon us in love to save us for the sake of your Son, that we might magnify his name in eternity as trophies of his grace. And we praise you and thank you, Lord, that all that terminates upon your glory. You who are infinitely wise, infinitely good, have shown such grace and mercy to us. God, thank you. Thank you. Help us to meditate on these things, to meditate on the wonder of it all. Help us to ex- exclaim and worship as Paul does. Oh, the, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Help us to worship you and to praise you for these things, to praise you for your unsearchable judgments, to praise you for your excellent ways We thank you, Lord, for this text. Thank you, Lord, that you revealed these things to us. I pray, Lord, they would sink. They would find root in our heads, in our minds, that we might understand them, and then find root in our hearts, that we might embrace them in faith. And they would show forth in our lives as we live through difficulty and adversity, trusting you through it as we preach your word to the lost, desiring from the heart to see all Israel saved, pray that you would bless that for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the bridegroom, by producing for him the chase of Christ. We love you. Thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.